For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, In this little section, he quotes uh, two portions of the Old Testament. One is Psalms 22, or Psalm 22. Uh, Does anybody know the significance of Psalm 22? Yeah, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then it goes through and describes my bones. Or, uh, and so there is clearly, you know, when a writer in the New Testament quotes a psalm, he's referencing the whole psalm. And the other is from Isaiah chapter 8. And so we have to hold these two portions of Scripture together because then he's going to explain why it is that, or what it is that Jesus has done in his incarnation, his death, and the idea is that he's defeated the slavery to the fear of death, that is the devil. Um, So you know Psalms 22, and then uh, Isaiah 8 describes the coming, uh, you know, that Assyria is about to destroy Israel, and it warns against consulting mediums, or turning to the grave uh, for instruction. Let me let me read Isaiah the Isaiah passage because we may not be as familiar with it. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power, instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, "You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people will call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble. So here is in Isaiah, in both Isaiah 28 and here, the messianic passages that talk about Jesus as here a stumbling stone, in Isaiah 28, a similar passage talking about the covenant with death, and Jesus, the messianic passage again that uh, Paul is going to quote several times. Many stumble over them, then they fall and will be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And of course, the picture of God turning his face from you is you lose the presence of God. You uh, are absent from the glory of God. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, and here's the, the verse that, is quoted in Hebrews, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Both here in in chapter 8 and chapter 28 and chapter 60, What the Jews are doing seems to be uh, a kind of necromancy. I'm not sure that they're consulting the dead. They're going out, they may be doing a kind of ancestor worship, which we're very familiar with in Japan. You see it, Obon. 
the literally the scene and and is one in which they're offering up incense you know and uh the prophet or god spirit comes on the scene and they say you know go away because we have something more holy so they're actually reifying and deifying death and this is precisely what the right i think this is why the writer of hebrews he's referencing both the psalm that talks about the death of christ and you know that he's destroyed and this psalm that's uh, about uh, a kind of ancestor worship should they consult the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony if they do not speak according to this word it is because they have no dawn dawn d-a-w-n that is no light um Bruggeman, in his commentary on isaiah uh, references the Isaiah 8 passage and in the you know consulting of the dead he says there is an overt sacralizing of the gap of death that is their their death is this absence and they're literally named it Mot and some people think Mot is a god the god of death Actually, Bruggeman doesn't think that, though he references that. Uh, but it's on the order of a kind of deity, whatever they're doing with it. Um, but they've, they've done the equivalent, that is, and Bruggeman agrees with this, of reifying or deifying death. Um, and he, the idea here is that death is kind of a, uh, uh, an absence, a negation, uh, and it's uh, the very thing that they've taken refuge in that. Uh, and so their fear, which is ultimately the fear of dying at the enemy hands, has evoked a kind of denial. So they're turning from God, and they're turning to necromancy. And uh, the prophet describes the face-to-face -face confrontation. You know, he, he comes on the scene as one of sheer terror in uh well in chapter eight um in isaiah 62 a very similar scene and i'm doing all this I'm, I'm referencing all of these passages because i think this is what the writer is talking about when he's going to talk about what it is that christ saves us from in his own defeat of the you know slavery to the fear of death I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say to yourself, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils of fire that burns all day long. Uh, Isaiah 62. I don't know if in Thailand they have such thing, but again, uh, they literally are making the graveyard the place of worship. They're making that the holy of holies, the kind of holy place. Uh, we really don't know what you know the 
religion of the Egyptians or a lot of these religions, but the, but what is proposed by many people that the underlying religion that is almost universal is some sort of worship of the dead, ancestor worship, uh, and that's certainly the case in in Japan. Isaiah twenty eight is the passage that describes this situation as the covenant with death. And that's what I'm saying, I'm, that Christ is undoing the covenant with death, the fear of death. That how, what is it that you know, Satan has done, or what is it that sin does, that we've been deceived. And the very, the, there's a very particular description of that deception, we've been deceived in regard to death. I think these religions that Isaiah is describing are a manifestation of that thing that happens universally. We may not have a religion in which we reify or deify death, but the, a very similar thing, and I'll, I'll go to these passages in the New Testament, uh, is what we do then psychologically or uh, in, in terms of uh, covetousness or desire, that a very similar process takes place. And so that we can just call this what the writer of Isaiah calls it, the covenant with death, and we can describe then Christ as the one who breaks this covenant. This is Isaiah 28. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact, the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. That is, that they're, they're saying, oh, we've got to deal with the, with the death itself, that while everybody else will be swept away, uh, we will not. Uh, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. And I just in, uh, think this is a reference back to the original deception. But here it's an organized religious deception. You know, you won't die. You'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. That is, that death is denied. And it's denied in the sense that a positive thing is put in its place, that uh, it becomes a passageway to uh, another reality. Therefore, says, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be put to shame, will not be disturbed. Uh, the writer of Hebrews has used already the shame language and glory language that we often find. And so the picture here is that uh, what this chief cornerstone, awfully, uh, uh, clearly a messianic passage is going to do, is to undo the covenant with death. And so I think what the writer of Hebrews is telling us in very clear language is how Jesus saves how this works, what's happening in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Uh, the way in which Christ is redeeming mankind is that he's freeing us from the slavery to death, from the, or actually the slavery to the fear of death might be the way we put it, because we don't really believe that Satan controls death in the sense of, you know, you die, you don't die. But he the deception is one in which he lures people into a life oriented to death due to sin, due to a misunderstanding, you know, a 
believing, you know, the the I think something on the order of the original line. This is uh, not the typical reading of Hebrews, and this is uh, what you get in a lot of uh, material on Hebrews. They say, oh well, he's you know he's bought into some Platonic or some Gnostic understanding, and there's a dualism. Uh, this has largely been set aside um, as a kind of misunderstanding of not just Hebrews, but of John. Uh, the Platonic you know, notion, oh, that he's bridging the gap between heaven and earth. He's bridging the gap. You know, God is pictured as, a, as this uh, transcendent God and material reality is somewhere evil and uh, Jesus is pictured as the mediator. I think that's precisely not what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Um, what is taking place has to do with the lordship of Christ and his kingdom being brought to all people. Um, Karl Barth has said the same thing, and he said this long before you know, uh, recent, the, the recent scholarship has shifted from the 1960s and 50s in which that was kind of, you know, oh, the Gnosticism in some way underlies the New Testament. What Bart noticed is that uh, Hebrews, John, especially John chapter 1, Colossians, that there is a kind of corollary behind all of these passages, and they're all doing the same thing. This is Karl Barth. The starting point is not that deity is so exalted and holy, or that the world is so dark, nor is the affirmation that there is something like a mediation between the two which bears the name of Jesus Christ. What they have in view is the kingdom of God drawn near, the turning point of the times, revealed in the name of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all the promises of the covenant of grace to give the bearer of this name the honor due to him, or rather to bear witness to the honor which he has, they venture the tremendous assertion that the world was created through him and in him uh, as through God and in God, in God's eternal will and purpose. So what Bart is doing is, is partly revolutionary because he's saying we've got to read the New Testament within the canon of the New Testament and see it as something uh, unique is happening in the New Testament and not attempt then to connect it uh, to some sort of source outside of the New Testament. So we could just say sin and death describes the place of rebellion, the place where the lordship of Christ is not exercised, where God is not acknowledged, and Christ has brought his lordship to bear even in the midst of sin and death. Even that place uh, where, you know, one... And we could think of sin and death as a kind of integrated category, just one thing, that death is simply a description of the orientation of sin and of the fruit of sin. Uh, Hebrews 2.14 Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render power, powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. 
So this Exodus motif is going to be there throughout Hebrews that Christ is delivering us from slavery. Slavery to what? Slavery to sin and and death. Uh, So the covenant with death, I think, describes the universal human predicament. And I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us the gospel uh, addresses. Uh, there are other passages, you know, if you think of the most, um, well, the passage in John, now is the judgment of this world, now shall the ruler of this world be cast out, and when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto myself. Why the death of Christ? That's obviously the reference. Why does the death of Christ, uh, why is that the universal aspect of the gospel? Well, we can understand why if we understand that the human predicament is one in which we are all oriented to death. Uh, certainly the passage in Genesis, you know, the, the idea of the original lie. Habakkuk 3.6 talks about that sin is as greedy as the grave. James, you know, talks about a desire that is death-dealing. Uh, Romans talks about the same desire or covetousness is often, you know, this idea of of a consumptive desire that kills us when we give in to it. James says, let no one when he is tempted say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And he goes on to describe, you know, when you, you, you're tempted, you give in to uh, lust, and then lust gives rise to sin, and sin gives rise to death. Uh, it's a kind of birth, a reverse birth process. Uh, the passage that, or the quote that is appears in all four Gospels, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, I think, we can understand what Christ means against the context of the covenant with death. People who would save their lives are going to do it on the same order that we're seeing in Isaiah, in the ancestor worship, in the reification or deification of death. Uh, Whoever loses his life for my sake, and of course here thinking of Paul's crucified eye, Uh, that it's no longer I that lives. So we can describe this in terms of a corporate condition or an individual condition. Paul is going to describe it, you know, the same thing, that sin deceived me, and it's no longer I that do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. He's animated by this force. He no longer has control. Uh, And so what he's picturing is the, the... Uh, choice between life or death and sin deceives he says and puts to death Uh, we could you know this is I think what we could come up with many parallel passages then to what the writer of Hebrews is giving us here I think this is the the launching point of his picture of the meaning of the atonement and that's probably what we should read the word propitiation we have let's just read it atonement how is Christ bringing us back into the presence, the glory of God? How, what is the high priestly work that Christ is doing? Uh, he's saving us from deception because he's the truth. 
Uh, he's saving us, you know, if you think in places like Luke 11, where he does the history of violence, and he's laying that at the feet of the Pharisees and the scribes and says, you know, you're, you, uh, he's describing what they've done as you've killed the prophets and you're going to kill me, and the same impetus is there. Uh, the the par- various parables that he tells, you know, uh, the parable of the tenants, that the way that they're going to get the kingdom is by killing the son, you know, when he comes to, to uh, get, get, get his inheritance. So what he keeps saying is, you're going to kill me. And what they keep saying is, no, we're not. And then they plot to kill him at that very instant in many, many places. So, I think that the writer of Hebrews is, in, in referencing these passages, is describing the universal human predicament, a kind of death-denying pride. Um, you know, uh, and death denial is a kind of double negative uh, in which you know, we would presume to be able to establish ourselves, to have life, to have access to God in and through our own power. Uh, and shame, then, is, of course, in the writers, he's going to use the language of not a shame, just as Paul does. But the, the image of, of shame is being given over to death. Shame is connected to death. We've done that uh, before. Uh, the other thing that is here in the passage, uh, and it, archegos, how, you know, how do we translate uh, Jesus is the leader, he's the pioneer. Some have translated it thinking that, you know, he's talked about do not drift away, uh, that he may be using nautical language. I don't know. So they say, oh, he's the captain. Uh, but whatever the idea is that he's the author, he's the leader of salvation. He's leading us into salvation. He's captain, you know, he's the one who ushers us into salvation. And he does this, he's perf- he, he is perfecting uh, what it is to be human, or he himself is perfectly human, suffering, and then the writer is saying, ascending as our high priest. So on what basis is Christ the high priest? On the basis of his Humanity, his incarnation, his suffering. And so any mediation in Hebrews comes from the human Jesus to God. That humanity itself in Jesus, and this is the passage we looked at last week, you know, that, that all things are made subject to this second Adam or to this representative Adam. So he presents his sacrifice, and what is the sacrifice? It's not, it's not that God needs death, but it's the continual sacrifice, or it's the life of Christ, and it's our life, then, dedicated to God, um, that is made possible in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So Jesus does not... Uh, he, you know, the idea is not that he sheds his body. And so nowhere in Hebrews is there any hint that in his ascension he leaves humanity or, you know, embodiment behind. Uh, he, it, we're said in 9.12, he enters the heavenly holy place with his own blood. We are sanctified in 10.10 10 
through the offering of the body of Jesus. Uh, in 10, 19-20, the, his flesh is the curtain uh, that gains access to the holy place. So, uh, the last thought here uh, in this section will talk. It references Psalms eight, and it talks about our sharing in God's glory, um, and the idea that uh, in Scripture, you know, when Paul, for example, talks about human sinfulness. He describes the problem of sin and death as a lack of the glory of God. We fall short of the glory of God. And so glory refers, maybe we could just say glory is the name for God. Glory is the presence of God. Glory is the splendor of, you know, God's presence. It's a manifestation of his character. Um, So Jesus' glorification and this, there's a kind of formulaic thing that's happening in Hebrews that is repeated in many other places. Jesus saves in and through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and exaltation. So that it's not, you know, we may have places in Scripture where it talks about the death of Christ as salvific, but there's the life of Christ as salvific. And the writer of Hebrews is focusing on the ascension of Christ but I don't think it's to the exclusion of the life, death, and resurrection. Um, so in, and, and the idea, of course, in a book like John is that with the exaltation of Christ at the right hand of the Father, the Spirit is given. Uh, and so even, you know, John seven thirty nine, uh, he explains that up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus is glorified, the presence of God is made manifest universally. So glorification in relation to Jesus' death, resurrection, and return to the Father uh, is, is uh, the kind of formula. John twelve sixteen. only after G- Jesus was glorified did the disciples realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. They didn't understand what was happening until the ascension of Christ, basically. And that's what we get in a book like John. It's, a, it's all reading back and saying, you know, John will put in little explanations, and this is what this meant, and we now understand what this meant. Uh, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the one who brings the complete revelation of God's presence to us. Um, and I think that the, the writer of Hebrews is, is going to use similar language. And I've, I've mentioned this before, but I think there's a parallel between the theology of John and the theology of Hebrews. And so it's natural to, to appeal to John. And I'll stop there. Any comments, questions? on my brief introduction. All right, let's uh, do a reading. Uh, Maisie, you want to read verse 10? Mm-hmm. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
What's the subject of this sentence? Who is the subject? Or the subjects? And I'm asking this because I'm not sure it's exactly clear. Uh, and that's sort of what's happening in several places in Hebrews. Um, you know, it was fitting that he, well, who is the one for whom and by whom all things exist? That's Jesus, right? He's already said that in, in uh, 1.3, right? That he's the creator of all things. Uh, but who is the founder in the, in, uh, of their salvation made perfect through? Well, that's clearly Christ. Um, I think the, 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 of course, the picture here, I don't think theologically we have a problem. And that is that, that what we have is the working of the Trinity in the incarnation of Christ. But sometimes, even as the writer of Hebrews described it, describes it, it's not clear which person of the Trinity is the agent behind the action. But I don't know that it's important to be able to distinguish it. Um, and of course the idea of perfection here is uh, he's already talked about the pre-existence of Christ and so perfection is not oh Jesus became God because of his suffering but the idea is that here is the telos here is the goal of who Jesus is and uh, that is then brought to completion and then, Michael, you want to do verse 11? For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, who are sanctified, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Uh, and the passage that he's about to quote is Psalm 22, which is all about shame. And it's in that passage that these people have surrounded him and crucified him and... He calls them brothers. Uh, you know, uh, so I think that we're literally here linking shame and death and not ashamed is what it's like to no longer be subject to fear of death, which the writer, or to be subject to death as the controlling factor, which the writer of Hebrews is building up to. And then the verse from, we read David from uh, the Psalm 22 and verse 12. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Um, maybe we should look at Psalm 22 and locate that. I think that is verse 22 in Psalm 22. Just to kind of put it in perspective. Uh and I'm not saying I, I understand completely what the significance is. Other than this is the, what did that mean when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think that we should just read that verse in isolation. And the writer of Hebrews is quoting the same psalm. I think to perform the same work in which Christ re uh, quotes it on the cross. You know, in John, he also quotes, it is finished. And again, we should probably quote that 
as a kind of echoing of the finishing of the work of, you know, as the in the creation event, that creation is finished. It's, it's the, uh, and Christ is saying, you know, if John is a kind of parallel to the creation or the recreation event, here is the work of the seventh day completed. Uh, so, t- verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers, uh, but look what comes right before it. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horn of the wild oxen. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you je- descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. Um and then above that, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Uh you know, above that, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And of course, that's the, the, the precise thing, is that in the facing of death, he trusts in God, and this becomes definitive of Christian faith. What is Christian faith? As Paul defines it, it's resurrection faith. That in the face of destruction, I mean, this is a literal, you know, the enemies crucifying Christ or Assyria destroying Israel. In the face of a literal destruction, the idea is that we can trust God and escape that fear that would terrify us. I'm doing a lot of talking. If you want to interrupt me, feel free. All right, Joel, you want to do uh, 13? And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children of children God has given me. And this is the reference. I'm just assuming that we should read this in you know the context of all of Isaiah 8. That I'm, yeah, that we looked at where the whole passage then is. Uh, these people who are, you know, consulting the dead in the face of destruction by their enemy, and then those who would put their trust in God in the, as an alternative to that. And those who trust in God are those brothers, those children, who will be counted as the faithful. So I think those are the choices. Covenant with death, or a covenant with Christ. And then, uh, Chris, you want to do 14? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that their death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So why is, what's the reason for the incarnation? Uh, it seems like that it's to defeat, you know, he's going to share in, a, in the human condition uh, in order to defeat the one who controls humanity through the power of death. 
And again, I'm, I'm reading this. He's going to actually qualify this. He's going to deliver us from the fear of death in the next verse. So I don't think the devil is the one who you know, says, oh, Miguel, get run over by a truck this evening. Or, you know, that he just chooses who lives and dies. But the way that that we're controlled is, I think, our lives become consumed by attempting to establish life when uh, in some other means than the source of life, and that is death. Uh, Alec, you want to do the next one? And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So uh, the picture of, you know, the writer's appealing to Exodus throughout. He's appealing to the sacrifices. He's appealing to the Day of Atonement, the Passover. What passed over? Well, the angel of death. But in this instance, it is a true deliverance of an enduring nature uh, from the one who holds the power of death. And then... uh, Chris, you want to do 16? For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And again, the theme that he's peeled out, peeled to throughout uh, is that Jesus is superior to angels. Why is he superior to angels? And of course, in being superior to angels, he's superior to the law and the ones who delivered the law. And the basis upon which he's superior is because he's incarnate, suffering, and human. So the deity of Christ, of course, is there, but it's the deity fused with the humanity that makes Christ the able mediator, the the great high priest, uh, more so than the mediators, which were angels. Okay, and then Faith, you want to do 17? For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might overcome, uh, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Uh, and I'm the, the, the word there, atonement, that he might bring God and humanity together that he might be the high priest who, you know, ushers humanity into the presence of God and mediates then the presence of God to us. And the way he does this is because he's made like us. He's made uh, like his brothers in every respect. And so that's the basis upon which he has, we have mercy. And he is called the faithful one here. And I think that's significant. It's obvious here that his faithfulness is the basis of human faithfulness. It's not just that we have faith in what he's done, but what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to is the faithfulness that he demonstrates. So the cross of Christ is not the focus of the wrath of God or the anger of God. It's in fact just the opposite. It's a display of then Uh, the deliverance of God from death and the mercy of God uh, is mediated to us then through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. So the cross is not, uh, you know, 
an object getting rid of God's wrath. In fact, we're all called to take up our cross and follow him. So it's a model for all of us. And then Miguel, verse 18. So he's been tempted in every way just as we have, that, he's, that it's not a false thing, that he truly became human. But he perfected humanity. Uh, he is the truly human one. You know, the first Adam failed to be fully human, but Christ gives us the full-blown purpose of humanity that we are to then put on. Okay, that's any comments, questions? A lot there. There is a lot there, and I'm not doing everything with it that could be done. Uh, the this thing is packed. Yeah. And I, you know, I just it, it's a very dense book uh, with filled with meaning, and I think part of the I think we need to unpack the meaning. Partly, in, in a, it's there for us if we can kind of uh, get rid of certain presuppositions going in. Uh, I think if we can locate the writer in Scripture and what he's doing, I think that's enough. That's that's what we need to do uh, because it's. I think the when he when he appeals to an Old Testament Scripture, I think he means for us to recognize the context that he's appealing to. When we read, uh, it's kind of a different topic, but it's just a thought that I had. When you read Psalm 22, and just thinking about, you know, like the scoffers who are laughing at, it makes it always makes me feel a little bit like uncomfortable. The same, and I felt the same way when I read "Tortured for Christ" by Richard Warmbrand, you know, and uh, just the faith that is displayed in him and the people that are also in prison and like the love that they're even uh, expressing to the people that are torturing them and uh, just their encouragement and the love that they have for one another as they share in that and like and then in Psalm 22 like it just makes me feel uncomfortable like Man, like, just like, which one would I have been? <laughs> which kind of person would I have been, you know? Like, would I have been one of the scoffers, or would I have been, like, identifying with Christ, you know? So, like, when you talk about the, when we talk about the faithfulness of Christ and, like, following Him, you know, I think of like extreme situations, whether it's us being put in prison or something, or, you know, like if we were at the crucifixion or something, and those like extreme situations, like how we would we be like prepared to be faithful in that kind of situation. And so, I don't know, I just think of, um, like that's that's just what we're doing every day when we talk about 
following Christ. It's not just, uh, you know, not doing this or not or doing this or reading your Bible every day or going to church on like it's not just something you can mark off. But as we're learning how to like love one another and identify with people, and then just that, I mean, obviously as Christ would identifying with us but I don't know those were just the thoughts that I had of like it is like an everyday thing of, of a little practice like a little bit at a time of learning how to identify with with people the oppressed person or whatever yeah, I, I, that when you start talking like that, it's like you're thinking we should take this all seriously. Uh, I never know if I'm up to it or not. Yeah. I, you know, I, I saw Richard Vermbrand. I went and heard him speak in a little church in Phoenix. And it was one of the most moving talks. I mean, he didn't say, it wasn't what he said, it was just the man. You know, he yeah. could... He, he was an old guy, but he couldn't walk, you know. He, he kind of hobbled up to the front, and he said, uh, he apologized. He said, I'll have to sit down for this talk because they tortured my feet, and I can't stand up for long periods. And he gave a little talk on love <laughs> from John. And, you know, wow, you know, here's this guy that, I think, was he 14 years that he was in prison? So and then after the talk, I and this this is even more shameful. <laughs> I was a poor college student. And I went back to you know I was trying to see if I had enough money to buy one of his books, and he just started handing me books. Yeah, I just take them, just take them. You know, I don't need to give him any money, and I did. <laughs> so yeah, could I? Yeah, when you're near or you're next to some giant in the faith like that, you know, then you think well. I don't know, maybe I'm not really a Christian after all. <laughs> He's the founder of Voice of the Martyr, correct? So, yeah. yeah. Or maybe God won't tempt me, being weak and puny and cowardly as I am, I pray that he will not tempt me more than what I am able. Uh, or that when we are put in situations that we have an empowerment. I mean, that's, I think, the promise that we can trust in the Spirit of God at those times. And we don't have to rely on our own strength. Uh, otherwise, I think I'm in a hopeless. Yeah, and I remember, I remember, because I used to have, like, really bad dreams about being in a wartime situation for some reason. I had, I had like, a couple different ones where, like, I was put in a situation where it was like, are you going to be violent or not? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. And so, but what I got, at least from one of those dreams, was like, wow, it's it's really important for me to be around some people who are you know, stronger than me, like, like-minded, but stronger than me, you know, in those situations. I'm, I'm not going to be able to handle it by myself, or I'm going to conform to whatever you know, group I'm in, whether it's my family, you know, it's like, well, we'll do what dad does or, you know, or that, the, church, the, the church that I was like, okay, well, <laughs> I want to be a part of here. And that's that was the other thing as you were describing, what you were describing of the, the people gathered around. Of course, the the when a crowd t- 
turns on somebody. And I've, I've been in those situations, I guess we all have as little kids, you know. When all the little kids turn on another kid, boy, you don't want to be caught with the kid they're all turning on. In other words, the last thing any of us want to do usually is be the scapegoat. But of course, that's precisely what I think we're called to do. And that's what's portrayed, you know, this is the what Gerard is getting at. I think it's there in that passage, and, you know, that he's forsaken. He's forsaken by the assembly, the people, Israel. They're the very ones who are going to, to turn on him. But, of course, Israel is, is not, uh, it's not just Israel, that they are representative of humanity, that this is what the first Adam would do when the first Adam encounters the second Adam. So I don't in any way to mean to make that anti-Semitic or because it was Rome, it was the Jews, but it was just humanity. Uh, and that's what, and so it, you know, this is the image of Peter when he betrays Christ, that he's swept up, and, and we all know that, that it's very hard to resist uh, that the, the, the movement of people. Uh, it's almost a force of nature, you know. But I think that's precisely what we're called to do. That was the amazing thing. Again, Richard Vermbrand, if I remember right, it was a communist meeting. Hmm. And he stood up in the meeting. I, I, I thought, boy, I don't think I would. <laughs> you know, I think I would have just stayed seated, you know. And he, you know, he blasted them for their, uh, I don't remember, but, it, you know, their, their, turning on on Christianity. Uh, that takes some bold action, and that's precisely the shift we see in the disciples. They're hiding out, and but then they're enabled, I think, through the power of the Spirit to proclaim Christ, knowing then that they're going to be arrested and beaten. Uh, so I, I think that that is the place in which we feel the presence of God is in when we truly face suffering and death. If you want the gift of the Spirit, pray for suffering and death. Or you want special gift of the Spirit. Yeah. Yes, 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 that there's enough suffering and we need to, to identify with it.